Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 76 for a reading of a psalm. Psalm 76. Israel is said in this particular psalm to worship the majesty of God, especially as it is described in defeating their enemies down through the sixth verse. And then the greatness of God in His government of men is described, and we are finally exhorted to vow to Him and to keep our vows and to praise and to worship Him in the final two verses. A short psalm, there's a verse in it that we refer to often because it helps us understand evil in the world. You know, so many that are poorly taught, and I'm not speaking about worldlings, I'm speaking of Christians, sometimes do not have a reason or an explanation for why there's evil in the world. Verse 10 tells us that surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. When men do angry and wicked things, it praises God because if it didn't, he would restrain that wrath. You know, it was 10 years ago when we had a big event in our nation with what we call the Twin Towers. And Billy Graham and others, you know, he was the pastor of the nation at the time said he didn't understand why such things happen. Well, we understand why what's, why such things happen because the Bible tells us why they happen. Our nation deserved that and a whole lot worse. This is a wicked nation. We have set ourselves from top to bottom against our Creator and against His Word, though we claim to be a Christian nation on our money and in our pledge. He should have done much more, and unless he does much more, many ministers have said he'll need to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah for judging them for less wickedness than we're guilty of as a nation. But surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. That's a surely thing in the Bible. That's something we believe. That God is going to get glory out of the wrath of man. The worst crime that ever took place was not the Twin Towers. The worst crime that ever took place in this universe was the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And did that event, the worst event of all, the greatest wrath and the most unjustified anger, did it praise God? It certainly did, and it was for our profit. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. There is God governing our earth and all the events that take place in it. Let us all rise for the reading together in unison of Psalm 76. Together. In Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is His tabernacle and His dwelling place in Zion. There break He the arrows of the bow, the shield, and the sword, and the battle. Selah. Thou art more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep, and none of the men of might have found their hands. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse are cast into a dead sleep. Thou, even thou, art to be feared. And who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? 
Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. Amen and amen. You may be seated. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. Romans 9 has mentioned one of those kings by name to us in the 17th and 18th verses where it describes Pharaoh. And how that God raised up Pharaoh from his conception through his gestation to his birth to kindergarten to graduating from high school to passing the exams in the military academies to winning his first battles to being put on the throne of Egypt. God raised him up with all those providential kindnesses and blessings to make him great for the purpose of destroying him. Unpopular theology, but plainly taught in the Bible. Moses told that to Pharaoh's face. Exodus chapter 9 and verse 17. Paul wrote it to us. Romans chapter 9 and verse 17. And he's implied and included right here in that 12th verse that God is terrible to the kings of the earth. But let's go back to the first verse and very quickly look at a couple of things in this psalm. In Judah is God known. Not everyone knew the Lord Jehovah. In fact, they didn't know his name unless they had heard it from an Israelite because God had revealed himself only to one nation. God didn't reveal himself to anyone else but Israel. He didn't give anyone else his law. He didn't come down and dwell with any other nation but the nation of Israel. And so it says in Judah, mentioning their principal tribe and the tribe of their kings and the tribe that the Lord Jesus came from is God known. And his name is great in Israel. You know, we are the Israel of the New Testament, where God has brought together in one body Jews and Gentiles. There no longer being that distinction of the Old Testament between Jews and Gentiles. We're the Israel of God. We're the Jews of the New Testament. And is God's name great among us? Do we love to talk about the greatness of God? Is His name great? Do we love to sing of His greatness? Do we love to tell of His great works? And his great deeds, it should be true. Verse 2, when it says Salem, is a shortened version of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, or in Salem, a shortened version of that name, also is his tabernacle. That's where a place was made for the worship of God, and his dwelling place in Zion, which was also a name of the city of Jerusalem. Zion, the city of David. There's where he dwelt with his people. Now the next verses, 3, 4, 5... And six, describe his power in defending his people by destroying their enemies. Look, he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield, the sword, and the battle. Selah means to stop and think about the great deliverances that they had had militarily. In verse 4, Zion, or the mountain of Israel, is more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. Or the large nations around them that preyed on them, Zion is more glorious and more excellent than any of the nations around Israel. It's not describing mountains literally or specifically, 
as, as we're going to see a lot of metaphors in this psalm and all the others, but it's describing great nations that were inferior to Israel because of the God of Israel being on their side. Look at verse 5. The stout-hearted, those are men with stout and large hearts, are spoiled. It doesn't matter how brave they may have been in basic training or advanced training or any other efforts to prepare them for military action. The stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep, the sleep of death, and none of the men of might have found their hands. You know, your hands were necessary to fight in the old days. And a lot, a lot is done from a keyboard these days. Instead of your hands grabbing your sword or grabbing a spear or taking a bow and arrow, these none of the men of might have found their hands. They couldn't get their weapons because God just stopped them from being able to fight. And at God's rebuke, both the chariot and the horse are cast into a dead sleep. Sometimes the Lord helps us out by what He means by sleep, and there it's called a dead sleep. So we love the Word of God. It's describing the victories that Israel had because God was their defender. And in the early days of this country, there was only one source of strength that this country gave thanks for with military victories. And it was the same God. You know, we just had Thanksgiving, and you know that every year when it comes Thanksgiving time, your pastor's going to be after you to read the Thanksgiving proclamations, not of a President Bush or a President Obama, but of our Continental Congress, because they're so excellent in taking words of Scripture and verses of Scripture and giving all the glory to God. And so we should continue that by, His name is great in Israel. We should continue to talk about the greatness of God being what has delivered us and provided for us and protected us. But we come to the seventh verse. God is to be feared. So many don't want to know about a God that needs to be feared. But the Lord Jesus Christ said this to his apostles, those that were the closest to God on earth, those that company with the Lord Jesus Christ. He told them, fear not them which kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye should fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Thou, even thou, art to be feared. Now the fear of God is not a terror fear that he's just out to punish us so we go hide in the trees of the garden like Adam. It is a fear that makes us run to him and repent of our sins and beg him for mercy and ask, what wilt thou have me to do? It's a totally different kind of fear. It's not paranoia. It's not terror. We know he's terrible. He's terrible to his enemies. He's terrible to the kings of the earth like the 12th verse tells us. But he's kind to his people. He arises to save the meek of the earth. He is to be feared, and who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible that ought to be taught to our children. This is the God of the Bible we ought to think about every day. This is not the God of the Bible painted on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. This is not the God that so many worship today. Because they've left the Word of God, and they're following a God of their own imagination instead of the God of the Bible. He hasn't changed one whit from the Old Testament to the New Testament in his terribleness towards sinners. Hebrews 12, that's New Testament, would say, 
Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve Him acceptably, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now that's a quotation from Deuteronomy, but Paul is giving in the book of Hebrews, meaning God has not changed. In the next chapter he says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. God caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still, verse 8, when he would destroy entire nations. Remember when the Philistines went to battle and Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant out, they remembered they remembered what God had done to Egypt, though it was like 400 years later. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 4 and 5. They remembered. They heard. They feared. And they heard Israel celebrating because they had the Ark of the Covenant out there. They were afraid and had to stir themselves up to go against Israel in battle. We know the outcome, and it was horrible because Israel was so hypocritical at the time. When God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. If you want to be delivered by God, then here is a description of the character of the righteous. They're meek. They're not looking for public flattery or praise. They're not looking for positions of influence or power. They're not looking for flattery. They're not looking for the commendations of men. They're meek. They're like Moses. The Bible tells us he was the meekest man in the face of the earth. He didn't want that job. Don't you remember how many times he tried to stay from being God's prophet until God tried to kill him in Exodus, the first four chapters? The meek of the earth. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Selah. And then the verse 10 that I've already explained to you and we want to remember. But verses 11 and 12 are the most important for us. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. You know, the Bible tells us when we go into the house of God, our words ought to be few and we ought to be very careful about what we say. Because Solomon would tell us that when we go into God's house, if you're going to vow, make sure you pay. It's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And here are both sides of that aspect of worship. Vowing and paying. Vow, go ahead and vow, but make sure you pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about him, and we're round about him. This is where he's chosen to be worshipped in the New Testament. In a church of saints like this is God's presence. And so we're round about him. Let's bring unto him presence. He ought to be feared. What presence do we bring in the New Testament? We don't bring bullocks. We don't bring goats. We don't bring the blood of rams. The sacrifice of praise of our lips giving thanks to His name. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. What a wonderful way of worship. All He asks for us is because the blood's been shed. It was the blood of His only begotten Son. He wants us to offer the sacrifice of praise. That's the fruit of our lips, not the fruit of our orchard, not the fruit of our fields, the fruit of our lips. And let's do that. Let's make His name great in Judah this day. And let's vow, let's commit ourselves to serve Him who has loved us, and let's pay that vow by truly following through and serving Him like we should. May God bless the reading of His Word. Amen. Amen.